dismissed right now, so go and enjoy Sunday school while all the adults have to suffer through my preaching. (laughs) Well, hey, I just want to offer a big Covenant Church welcome to all of our guests, longtime members, attenders. I don't care who you are. I'm just glad that you're here. Um, We're a church. Our sole mission is this. It's to know Jesus and to make him known in this local community. And we do that through preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, through cultivating worship, through creating community that loves God, and for living on mission, meaning we preach the gospel to every single person that we know. So that's who we are as a church, and I welcome you here. My name is uh, Ben Espinosa, and I serve as the pastor of Community Life here at Covenant Church. And, and this morning, we're going to be continuing through our series called Ask, where we deal with some of the tougher questions that people have about the Christian faith. And we're doing this series not only because we want to answer some of these tough questions, but because we want to encourage you and equip you to better converse with people who do have these tough tough objections to the Christian faith. And last week, we dealt with the existence of Jesus and the proof of his resurrection. And let me emphasize this, you know, we're not going to solve all the earth's problems in a 30-minute sermon, okay? The purpose of this series is just to give you a taste of what's going on in our culture and to encourage you to engage in the questions of of our culture in a critical yet respectful, meaningful, irresistible way. And this morning, we're going to be tackling another issue that continues to come into the cultural consciousness every few years or so, and it receives a lot of attention into the media. But before I get into into my message, I want to share with you a quick story. Uh, before I finished up my degree in Bible and theology at a Christian college, I attended a community college uh, because I wanted to save some money and pursue my dream of becoming a rock star. It's true. You should ask me about that later. And at that community college, I had this awesome professor of British literature who was probably one of the most passionate and most outspoken atheists I'd ever met. And we actually became really, really great friends, okay, which is the cool part. And in community college, I was, the, uh, I was the cool Christian, okay? I wore the awesome clothes. I told jokes in class. I went with uh, smokers on their smoke break. Didn't smoke. Uh, and I always carried my thick leather Greek and Hebrew Bible with me just so they know how cool I really was as a Christian. So I get into this British literature class with this passionate, outspoken, atheist professor. And the semester goes on, and we start to strike up a friendship. And we start to talk about the Bible and about theology. Now, the interesting thing about this uh, professor of of British literature is that he also taught an introduction to composition class where the only required textbook was a Bible because he wanted to make his students read the Bible as a good work of literature and to kind of bring forth some of the contradictions that are within Scripture as well. And he wanted to kind of discredit Christianity in a way. That was his goal. He told me that personally. Now, I asked him about this. I said, you know, bro... You know, you and I are cool, okay? But don't you think it's a little sacrilegious to require that your students read the Bible and pick apart the religious text that guides their life and faith? He said, you know, no, I mean, it's, it's all a myth. It's all just great literature, like any other great story that you might read. And then I said, you know, Richard, have you done any research into the historical reliability of the New Testament? And he said, you know, Ben, we're cool, But nothing you say or do will convince me that there is a God. We can't persuade people into believing in Jesus, okay? Only God can do that. But God does use means such as this, such as this sermon series, such as great apologetics, such as great efforts to show the historical reliability of the New Testament, to show that Jesus did rise from the dead. It's it's credible and it's believable to believe in a Jesus who actually walked this earth. 
So we can't save everybody. We, we can't, we can't uh, force people to believe what we believe. But this is one of those means that God does use to bring people to faith in him. So that's why we're doing this series right here. Because God uses sermons such as these to bring people to believe in him. And the question we're going to be tackling today is this, is are the Gospels reliable? And this is a question, like I said, this kind of comes into the cultural consciousness every few years or so. Now, I would have loved to do an hour and a half presentation on why you can trust the whole Bible 100%, but for time reasons, and because I know the Browns are playing today, I'm going to restrict my sermon to just focusing on why we can trust the four Gospels. Sound good? Good. (laughs) Whether it's the Da Vinci Code or some new fragment that says something new about Jesus, these four books of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, evoke the most criticism and scrutiny from scholars and average Joes alike. And there are books written every single year to try to bring up a new point of concern about the Gospels or try to straight up attack the basis of the Christian faith, which is the New Testament. So what I want to do this morning is to show you that the Gospels, these four books of the Bible, are historically reliable. They're not just good stories or myths. These are eyewitness accounts that have been thrown under the harshest of scrutinies, but have arisen true every single time. So before we dig into this, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll open our hearts and our minds and our eyes to the different things that you want us to know about you this morning, Lord. Recall us to faith in you. Help us to believe in you. If we have doubts, I pray that you'll answer them this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So one of the biggest challenges to the historical reliability of the Gospels is that they apparently contradict one another. They tell the same stories, but they omit or they add different details. But what you have to understand about the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is that they're trying, that they're four different yet complementary uh, accounts of the life of Christ. And they're trying to argue for a particular aspect of Jesus' identity. You see, the Gospel of Matthew, the first Gospel, is very Jewish in orientation. For Matthew, Jesus is the new Moses who will set his people free. And Matthew uses references to the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament, profusely in his writing. And what's interesting is that Matthew traces Jesus' genealogy all the way back to Abraham, one of the first major characters of Scripture, Uh, and then through David, who was the king of Israel, and finally to Joseph, who was the adoptive father of Jesus. So Matthew is trying to show that Jesus is the new Adam, he's the new Moses, and he's the heir to the Davidic throne. So there's a very Jewish feel to Matthew's gospel. And then you have Mark, which was probably the very first gospel ever written. And just so you know, many scholars actually believe that it was Peter who overshadowed Mark while he was writing his gospel. And the goal of Mark's gospel is to show the universality of Jesus' call to discipleship. Jesus calls you to come and die and find your ultimate life in him. Not only this, Mark is writing to a primarily Gentile audience who would have been unfamiliar with Jewish, Jewish belief, practices, and customs. So one of his goals here was to, was to present Jesus in a way that would have been understandable to everybody, Jew and Gentile alike. And Luke has a similar motivation to Mark. Luke was a physician, and his goal, admittedly, in the first few verses, like he says, was to put forth a very historically and physically reliable description of Jesus' life. And in Luke, you have minute attention to detail that you won't find in any other gospel. And Luke wants to emphasize Jesus' humanity while recognizing that he was also God incarnate. 
So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John are known as the synoptic gospels because they're similar to one another. And then you have the Gospel of John, which is probably the most mysterious of the four Gospels, okay? John's prerogative was to show that Jesus Christ is the true Son of God, which is why he begins his book with a divine genealogy, as I call it. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the very beginning. And all throughout the book of John, you, have, you see Jesus proclaiming his divinity time and again. So you have these four different Gospels, and they emphasize a particular aspect of Christ's identity and his life and his work. Now, one of the biggest challenges of the historical reliability of the Gospels is that they're all different. And for some, because they're not identical, it means that they contradict one another. And this criticism intensifies when you begin to detail, uh, when you begin to look at the accounts of the resurrection, because some of the accounts of the resurrection seem to leave things out or straight up contradict one another. Now, there are plenty of instances where this happens, okay? Matthew is the only writer who records Christ's first appearance to the women, while Luke is the only one that gives an account of Jesus' appearance to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. The appearance to Mary Magdalene is also omitted by Luke, and only John records the appearance of Jesus in the upper room when Thomas was present, and also Christ's appearance on the Sea of Galilee. So you have some of these omissions that, that occur throughout the resurrection accounts. But sometimes you get things that appear to be contradictions. For instance, the Gospels, uh, Gospel accounts vary on exactly when the women visited Jesus' tomb, okay? John says that it was still dark. Luke says it was very early in the morning. And Mark says it was just after sunrise. But if the visit was at dawn, as it says in the book of Matthew, they're likely describing the same thing using slightly different descriptions. And there are other instances like this as well, okay? Such as whether or not there were one or two angels at the tomb, or there were one or two women who actually saw Jesus after he first rose from the dead. But they're not different enough to label a contradiction. Wilbur Smith, who was a great scholar, wrote this back in 1954. He says, In these fundamental truths, there are absolutely no contradictions. The so-called variations in the narratives are only the details which are most vividly impressed on one mind or another of the witnesses of the Lord's resurrection or on the mind of the writers of these four respective gospels. It's like if I asked four of you to write an account of this morning's service. Some of you would emphasize the delicious coffee that you just drank and how welcome that you felt. Some of you would talk about the great songs that we sang. Some of you would talk about the preacher who was okay, B minus at best. Some of you will come to the Connect class after church, which I hope some of you do, and you'd probably talk about that. But I guarantee you, in all these accounts, we're going to say the same things, okay? There were people in a building on 1165 Haskins Road in Bowling Green, Ohio. Everyone said hi to each other. There were some awesome songs. Ben preached. We had communion. People went home. So while they, you may have a lot of these different kinds of accounts, the essential truths are still there, even if they vary in the slightest of details. So as I, as I said before, you have four different but complementary accounts of Jesus' life, and they want to emphasize different things about Jesus. So not all the details are going to be exactly the same, but the core of the resurrection story is there. Joseph of Arimathea, a great Jewish leader, takes the body of Jesus, puts it in a tomb. One or more of Jesus' female followers visit the tomb early on a Sunday morning, and they find that the tomb is empty. They see a vision of either one or two angels who say that Jesus is risen. 
And despite the slight differences concerning the exact number of women and their names, the exact time of mourning, and the number of angels, we can have great confidence that all these stories line up. And let me appeal to the logic of this all too, okay? If Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were so concerned with perpetuating the Jesus myth, wouldn't they have gotten together in a Starbucks in Jerusalem, went over their Gospels, and made sure it was all airtight, all the stories lined up? They probably would have, but they didn't. Because these are men who were there with Jesus. They walked with Jesus. They talked with Jesus. And they were interested and telling different types of people about who Jesus was. So they didn't all have to have the same exact account. So while there are slight differences between accounts of the resurrection, they are in no way contradictory, and all the major events there are present. But that naturally leads to another question, okay? How do I know that these are actual eyewitness accounts? Now, what you may not know is that the Gospels were written between 40 and 60 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. But the letters of Paul were actually written 15 or 20 years after the fact. And Paul touches on various aspects of Jesus' life. His birth, his miracle, his claims, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. And what this tells us is that these stories about Jesus were still circulating around Judea and around the entire Roman Empire as well. And you see this in Acts chapter 26, when the Apostle Paul is giving his testimony before King Agrippa. He says this, you know, King Agrippa, you know, all this stuff about Jesus, it's all true and it's all reasonable. And what Paul says here is funny. He's like, none of this stuff was done in a corner. And he's basically saying, you can go ask the eyewitnesses that were there. And Paul continues this kind of line of apologetics in 1 Corinthians 15. After he gives his rundown of the gospel, what the true core of the gospel is, he says, look, go ask people about this stuff because it actually happened. So the story of Jesus was circulating all across the Roman Empire from very early on, and there were still eyewitnesses who could verify the truths of such claims. Now, before I go any further, you're probably doing some math in your head, all right? Well, if Matthew and Mark and Luke and John all walked with Jesus and they all wrote their Gospels like 50 years after the fact, they've got to be way too senile to write something accurate about the life of Jesus, right? But keep in mind that Jesus didn't call these disciples when they were like 40. Most likely, they're in their late teens or in their early 20s. So when these guys are writing their Gospels, they were probably in their late 50s, early 60s, which is pretty reasonable. Now, when it comes to the Gospels, despite the fact that they were written almost 50 years after the events of the life of Christ, they're incredibly accurate, and they're filled with all different kinds of little details. In Mark 4, you read that Jesus was asleep on a cushion on the stern of a boat. In Mark 15, we read that the person who helped Jesus carry his cross was the father of Alexander and Rufus. In John 21, we're told that Peter was 100 yards out in the water, when he saw Jesus on the boat. And after that, Jesus caught 153 fish. In John 8, we read that Jesus kind of doodled something into the sand. We're not told exactly what he said, but we know that he did write something. And when you study the psychology of recollective memory, you see that we tend to remember those little details that coincide with big historic events. Think about those details that surround some of the biggest events of your life. I remember the first time I met my wife. She was wearing black boots with white polka dots. And that when offered coffee, she declined, even though coffee is her favorite drink. I still don't know why, but I married her, so it's all good. 
And I'm sure each of you have those instances in your own life as well. So you get this incredible level of detail that you don't see in any other ancient writings. C.S. Lewis says this. He alludes to this when he writes this. He says, I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they're like. I know none of them are like this. Of this gospel text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, or else some unknown writer without predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic narrative. And what Lewis is saying here is that these gospels aren't written like fiction, not only because of the intricate details of the gospel, but also because they're strikingly real and super honest. If you were, write, if you were to write a story about the man who you, who you thought was God, who you thought was the savior of humanity, who would save you from your sins, you wouldn't write any negative things about him, nor would you write any negative things about yourself. But you get this all throughout the Gospels, okay? You see James and John competing with one another with, for who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You see Peter, the, lead, the leader of the early church, denying Jesus three times. You see Jesus dozing off and falling asleep. And you see him expressing deep concern that he'll have to go through the excruciating execution of a crucifixion, bear the sins of humanity, This isn't the stuff of legend. This is the stuff of reality. Add to this the fact that people in the ancient world were expected to memorize everything because they didn't have a pen and paper handy to jot things down. That's why the gospel writers, despite the fact that they were 50 years removed from the life and from the events of Jesus Christ, can write these things down with incredible accuracy. It only adds to the credibility that these things actually happened and that the gospels were written by eyewitnesses. So I believe that the apparent contradictions in the Gospels can be harmonized together very well. And I believe that these four books were written by men who walk with Jesus and who witnessed history unfold before their very eyes. But another question that inevitably comes up when you start talking about the reliability of the Gospels is this. What do you make of recent archaeological finds that contradict what the Gospels say? And this question, more so than any other question I've tried to answer this morning, is the one that usually gets the most press, okay? Check this out right here. This is from the supposed gospel of Jesus' wife. Now, this was found in 2012, and when this discovery was made, people thought it was earth-shattering because it lent credence to the idea that had been circulating around our culture for like 10 years that Jesus, he had a wife, he had some kids, and those kids migrated to France, and there's people who actually, this is, you can't make this stuff up. Uh, these kids migrated to France, and there's people walking the earth today who actually have Jesus' blood running through their veins. And like I said, you kind of get this in, in the Da Vinci Code, which came out in the early 2000s. And this kind of thinking finds its way into our cultural consciousness every few years or so, mainly because of discoveries like this one right here. Now, let me say this too, okay? Most scholars didn't take this seriously. And even the main scholar that discovered this Uh, She apologized for calling it the gospel of Jesus' wife because she thought it may have been presumptuous and inflammatory. But in the media and in popular culture, like I said, we like a good conspiracy theory, okay? We like to think that lizards might run the planet, okay? So the media was all over this kind of stuff when it came out. But upon closer inspection, scholars, non-Christian scholars, found this was actually a forgery, It was written on a piece of ancient papyrus paper, and the style of the writing is impeccable. 
But there there are all kinds of grammatical errors that plague this little piece of paper. And moreover, some scholars did some scientific work on this, like they did some testing. And they came to the conclusion that it really is a modern forgery. And that's what the critical consensus remains right now. But we see these things that arise in our culture from time to time, and it brings us just a little bit of concern and causes us to cast doubt on the historical reliability of these accounts of the life of Jesus. Now, this is its own area of study, so I don't want to get too in-depth, but let me share some facts with you about the authenticity of the entire New Testament, okay? First, these uh, the, these pieces of text, such as the Gospel of Thomas, you've heard of that, the Gospel of Judas, or even the Gospel of Jesus' wife, were written well after the biblical Gospels actually were. And the earliest manuscripts we have of these non-canonical, these non-biblical Gospels, are like 175 AD or so. And they're widely affiliated with a group called the Gnostics. And I don't want to get into that, but they're basically, they're just not really good Christians, Okay. And moreover, we only have a few copies of these original documents swirling around. So whenever you hear of an ancient text that's being discovered like this one that seems to contradict what the Gospels actually say, you don't have to worry about it because there's very, very, very few of these in existence. Okay? Adam Gopnik, who is a, a writer for The New Yorker, he writes this. He says that these kinds of ancient documents, like this one, no more challenge the basis of the church's faith than the discovery of a document from the 19th century written in Ohio and defending King George would be a challenge to the base of American democracy, okay? So while these kinds of discoveries can kind of cause you to squirm a little bit, you really don't have too much to worry about, and here's why. Because we have nearly 6,000 copies of the New Testament dating back to 130 AD, which is 40 years after the last book written in the New Testament, Revelation. Not only this, they're identical 99.5% of the time, meaning if you were to line all these copies up together, they would match up 99.5% of the time. And the 0.5% that aren't identical are ones that are kind of riddled with very, very, very small, minute changes, like, like throwing a the or an and somewhere where it needs to be. Now, another criticism you'll hear is simply that all the manuscripts are so vastly different from one another. In fact, there are over 400,000 variants between these manuscripts. They're so different from one another, they can't possibly be accurate. But like I said, these are very minor modifications to the text, and they don't change the meaning very much, if at all. And they're also an extreme minority in New Testament manuscripts. Like I said, the ones that deviate Uh, deviate only 0.5% of the time, meaning the New Testament, the copies that we have, it's almost 100% accurate. Now, compare this to Homer's Iliad, okay? There's only 643 copies in existence, and the earliest copy that we have was written 500 years after the original document, and those 643 copies are only 95% accurate. And these foundational works of Western culture, like Plato and Socrates and all that, we have even fewer copies of this. So when it comes to accuracy and uniformity and veracity, the New Testament has no equal. And you can rest assured that these challenges to the reliability of the Gospels have little historical or theological effect. So what does this all mean for us today? Well, you know, first and foremost, there will always be challenges to the reliability of the Gospels. 
they'll never go away. There will always be another book written that says that the Gospels are fiction or the Gospels are wrong, or somebody will find a new fragment that challenges what the Gospel says, and there will always be questions about the reliability of Scripture. But we can't shy away from these challenges, okay? We need to know how to answer all of these challenges. Remember how Paul told the Corinthians to go and verify these things with the eyewitnesses in 1 Corinthians 4, 15? Remember how he reasoned with all the philosophers in Athens? And remember how Peter tells us how to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us? As Christians, we need to know how to, we know, need to, know how to be able to answer the tough questions that people throw our way. Why? Because it's one of the ways that God reaches people who need to know him. So we need to be able to know the facts so we can present the gospel in a way that is logical, meaningful, and irresistible. And I'll say this too, these are points of conversation. This isn't a case-closed kind of sermon series, okay? Some of you are thinking, well, what about this, Ben? Or what about that, Ben? I'd say, go and explore these things for yourself. Let's chat about these things. And like I've said before, it's my job as a pastor to equip you to engage in these kinds of conversations. But a sermon series like this is just to kickstart these kinds of conversations. You need to wrestle with why you personally believe these things or why you don't. And let me go this direction as well, okay? We can defend the historical reliability of the New Testament until we're blue in the face, but that alone will not save souls. This won't convince my professor. It won't convince some of you in this room, and that's okay because it is only God that can change somebody's heart. We can help people open their minds to the truth of the gospel, but it is is only God that can change them from the inside out. And I want to challenge every single person in this room who believes in the inspiration and inerrancy of this book right here. If you truly believe that this is the Word of God, it's historically, theologically accurate and reliable, do you practice everything in it? I think sometimes as Christians, we try to prove why you can believe the Bible without without actually trusting that it's the best way to live your life. Listen to this quote from Soren Kierkegaard, all right? He says, The Bible is very easy to understand, but we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand it, we're obliged to act accordingly. So if you believe that the Gospels tell the true story of Christ, are you living it out? Or are you trying to bend and twist Scripture to make it a little more palatable for your life? Well, Jesus didn't mean that all forms of anger are bad. Well, Jesus didn't mean that, you know, I couldn't judge some kinds of people. Well, the stuff about visiting people in prison and sharing the good news about prostitutes doesn't really apply to me today. I think it's a graver sin to pay such honor and tribute to Scripture while refusing to apply it to your daily life than to ignore it completely. Like Jesus told the Pharisees, do we honor God with our lips while having our hearts far from Him? And are you using God's Word as a tool to further your own agenda? Or are you submitting yourself to the Word to further God's agenda? That's the question we have to wrestle with, people. We can take this. We can believe that this is true, but we need to put it into our daily lives. And if we believe that the Gospels are true, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus has some pretty tough stuff to say to us. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to God but through me. And he has all these commands in the Sermon on the Mount. 
Like I said, we can prove these things. We can show you that these are accurate. We can show you that these things actually happened. But we have to live it out first and foremost. And that's what we do today. That's what we celebrate right now when we celebrate communion. We believe that this stuff actually happened. We believe that Jesus Christ came, he died, and he rose again for the sins of many. And this is why we celebrate Jesus, because he sacrificed himself for us. And this is a celebratory meal that we have forgiveness of our sins. And it's a a meal of thanksgiving that we can thank God that he saved us from our sins as well. Now, I'm going to invite the worship team back up here. And in a few moments, I'm going to invite you guys to come up here, take a piece of bread, dip it into the cup. Remember all that Jesus has done for you, all that Jesus is doing for you, and all that Jesus will do for you. Because if we believe all the stuff it says here in the Bible, in God's word, then we believe that he's coming again to restore all the brokenness, all the ugly stuff that we see in this life into something beautiful through him. So I ask you, are you going to believe that this is true and do something about it? What will you do with the evidence? Are you just going to walk away and say, okay, whatever, I'm going to ignore it? Are you going to say, I believe what's in this book right here, and I'm going to put my faith and hope in Jesus Christ? That's the challenge I have for you this morning. Let's stand and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll bless us as we continue to live out your word and seek to apply it to our lives. And I pray that you'll continue to do a good work in our lives through you, Lord. Help us to remember that, that words and proofs and apologetics are only so good, but you are infinitely better, Heavenly Father. I pray that you'll bless us as we seek to live out everything that you've taught us in your word, Lord. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Forgive me, it's a bit of an awkward transition. So.